When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, Saito Tejaniya said, then your values in life will change. And when your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. When we come to a retreat like this and hear the Dharma and practice in this way, we cultivate certain qualities and capacities of mind. And we develop these attributes that uh, this format of practice is particularly designed to arouse, enhance, and cultivate. It is a mistake to think that the lifestyle of a retreat should become your adopted lifestyle. We don't want to live in silence. We don't want to live in slow motion. And there's, there's much more to our lives than just uh, sitting and walking and occasionally asking a few questions and hearing a talk. So the challenge for us all is how to take these teachings and how to take this practice into our life, the full range of our life. Because to live in isolation, seclusion, alienation, away from uh, our society, our community, the, the larger world community, is not in the long run uh, <coughs> viable for a temporary uh, hit, for a period of training, for an introduction and extended practice like this. It's fine to remove yourself from the entanglements of the world and to really work quite almost exclusively on the development of the heart. But the test is not how well you do here. The test is how happy you are at home, at work at play, in your social life, engaged in the political discourse of the nation. And if we can't find happiness there, where do we think we're going to find it? This is our life. This is the range of our life's activities. And to withdraw from in being engaged in life out of fear or out of alienation, out of a sense of inadequacy or insufficiency, is not the path to happiness. So how can we understand happiness? What, what is happiness? What is this sense of well-being that we talk about, that many teachers talk about? And is it possible, the real question is, is it possible for us in 21st century America to live with awareness and a sense of well-being right here, right now? And I don't want to minimize the challenge because it's a challenge. The Buddha was asked, what are the conditions for genuine happiness in life? What are, in the words of the time, what are the blessings? What are the conditions that are uh, auspicious, uh, fortuitous, that are considered boons, that 
provide the framework or the foundation for happiness in one's life. And he gave a discourse on blessings. It's called the Maha Great Mangala Blessings Sutra Discourse. The Great Blessings Discourse. So I want to read it. The 38 blessings that he identified. And I want to comment on it. Because we can hear this list of conditions and it's instructive for us to review them and how they apply or how they fit in our life today and to reflect on which of those blessings are really present in our life so that we can reflect on them and acknowledge the sense of well-being that comes from them but also so that we can um, identify those conditions which are deficient or absent or undeveloped and take them as uh, a practice, a personal practice to, to bring into our life, to further support the possibility of happiness and, and a sense of well-being in our life. So the Buddha was asked, and I won't read all the preamble to the discourse, but I'll just, I just want to identify what the Buddha said. He said, these are the highest blessings, not to associate with foolish people. If it was our choice all the time, we would. But nevertheless, to associate with the wise, to honor the worthy, to reside in a suitable location, to have done good deeds in the past. That means to have good karmic results coming in the present. To regulate oneself rightly, to, to, to act right. To speak well or to be well-spoken. To be well-educated and knowledgeable. To be skilled in the handicrafts and sciences. To be well-trained and disciplined. To care for your mother to care for your father, to look after your partner, your spouse, your children, to engage in a harmless occupation, to act without harming others, and to perform blameless actions. These are, these are the blessings in our life. To be generous to your relatives, to give selflessly, to abstain from evil or unskillful actions to avoid intoxicants, to be diligent in virtuous practice, to be reverent, to be humble, to be content, to be grateful, to take the opportunity to hear the Dharma at the right time, to be patient, to be obedient, to visit with spiritual people and to discuss the Dharma at the right time, to live simply, to live purely, to see the noble truths and to realize the liberated mind, to cultivate a mind unshaken by the eight worldly conditions of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, to be free of anxiety, to be stainless and pure, to purify the mind, and to live secure and safe. Well, so I'm sure just in reading the list, you were able to recognize some that need some work and some that are, are present. And from this, we can see that happiness or sense of well-being is not only a personal growth challenge, but it's a spiritual endeavor as well as involving social and political action. Just as the Buddha said, having good spiritual friends is 100% of the holy life. So too, our individual happiness 
intimately depends on one another and the community in which we live. And their happiness, the happiness of other members of our community, is going to significantly impact our own happiness. Our happiness cannot be gained at the expense of someone else's. To only consider happiness or to view one's own happiness as a personal goal focused on your own self-aggrandizement is a source of stress and disappointment. It's unrealistic and an inappropriate expectation. And it can only come from a, a very limited understanding of the mind of what happiness is. Karl Marx, that great spiritual leader, (laughs) acknowledged that people write their own histories, but not under circumstances of their own choosing. And I think that all of us could understand that really well. We, We are responsible for our own personal life, but the conditions that we have to work with in and to, and to do that, well, it may not be our first choice. But nevertheless, that's, that's the hand of cards we're dealt with, and this is what we've got to work with. So, I've taken these 38 blessings that the Buddha identified, and I have arranged and rearranged them into uh, five groups and named them. The Buddha identified these arenas of uh, this subjective sense of well-being and acknowledged that you know, these conditions all affect one another. They're interrelated, they're mutually reciprocal, they're practices, they can be addressed through personal effort. And the first area of blessing is concerning our worldly lifestyle for uh, gaining the relative happiness of ease in our minds and bodies. Secondly, I've identified the uh, areas of personal relationship and that extends into the political and economic sphere of life because, as we know, so much of our happiness uh, is conditioned by our relationships and how much harmony and understanding there is within them. Third, The Buddha identified many, several uh, personal qualities or attributes which will be helpful to identify so that we can consider them uh, practices. Fourth, there are definite spiritual practices that will awaken and grow ennobling your own heart. And then there are the the deepest understandings that liberate the heart, liberate the mind from the sources of unhappiness. So, in the arena of worldly lifestyle and relative happiness, the Buddha said, to have done good deeds in the past, to be endowed with merit, to reside in a suitable place, to be well-educated and knowledgeable, to be skilled in the sciences and handicrafts, to look after your partner, spouse, family members, children, to support your relatives, 
and to care for your mother and your father. This has to do a lot with just you know, the, the household lifestyle that we're living. And when I, when I read this, I, I realize how, uh, how impactful each of those conditions are, where you live, what kind of uh, job you have, how you're able to care for other family members or your household members, um, the kind of job you have, and things like that. They really impact our both our sense of self and our sense of, of well-being. And just to take this, uh, to reside in a suitable place. Well, if you ask the vast majority of the world's population where they'd like to live, we're there. As difficult and as challenging as it is for us, and it is, I don't mean to minimize the challenges that we have finding suitable housing, uh, education, jobs, the whole thing. It's, it's challenging. But it's nothing like it is in most of the rest of the world. Do we recognize that? Can we take some time to, to just recognize how well off we really are? And to, yeah, not to, not to be Pollyannish about, you know, the challenges we're facing, but to acknowledge the tremendous uh, gifts that this society, this culture, the political system we live in, the economic system we live in, the health system for all of its faults, that we have, I mean, it's just tremendous. And it's too easy to only see the headlines as indicative of where we live. Because the headlines, the headlines are all about what's wrong, what's not working, the, the difficulties, the challenges, the stresses. You could say it's the pimple on you know, a perfect situation. Because there's so much that's good that can already serve as foundation for happiness. When the Buddha talks about being well-educated and knowledgeable, most of us in this room are really well-educated and knowledgeable and have enough leisure time, discretionary income, good enough health to take nine days and do nothing. That's phenomenal. You shouldn't forget that. You should call that to mind daily to remind ourselves how fortunate we are. To have rewarding work. I know some of you have, have talked about not having, not yet having, or being between, between periods of rewarding work, maybe. <laughs> but I, I, meet, I meet people who are really not happy with the work they do. They have to work to provide for themselves, support themselves. And I can see, I can, I can hear, even though there's an income, not having rewarding work, but having drudgery work. Well, it, it's partly an attitudinal thing, but sometimes you know it really is pretty, pretty hard work. We're blessed. We really are blessed. One of the conditions of a suitable place to live is that we have the opportunity to hear the Dharma. And not everyone has that opportunity. There are many places, I mean, we get invitations from people that would like to have uh, teachers come. 
I mean, it's, there's a lot available on the internet and books, but sometimes even more than that, you need the personal contact to to get the inspiration, to get the personal guidance. And well, this is a lucky community, in a way. There's a lot of places that that, that don't have it, and people have to travel much further than than you. So this area of our life is, uh, as we know, it's a place of uh, both great support and it's all unstable. So while we have these conditions, just to reflect on them can in itself bring a sense of ease and a, a sense of well-being. One of the last retreats that we did on Maui uh, a year or so ago, there's a, a woman who has comes to a lot of our retreats. She might have been here last year, actually. She's a, she's a little bit older than most of us, and she's uh, a woman of uh, color, and she's very educated. And she's had a hard life, really hard life. And so she came to an interview with me uh, during this, you know, and she was uh, just kind of lamenting the, the difficulties that she's had in her life. And I don't know, it must have been after a karma talk or something. And she came to me and said something like, boy, the next time around, if there's a next time around, Next time around, I want to be born into the dominant gender and the dominant race. <laughs> and I said, why? You don't think white guys have, uh, have any difficulties or challenges? And uh, she, you know, we had a, a friendly discussion. And I said, you know, one of the things when I think about where I'd like to be, uh, take up my next residence if, if there's going to be one like that is wherever it is I want to have access to the Dharma whatever else is there or not there I want to have access to the Dharma at an early age so that I can really develop these qualities these understandings from an early age in my life because I see that you know material goods and material well-being that's great but without the Dharma, it's a trap. And I see those who don't have such material well-being, but who have the Dharma, who have uh, an abundant heart. And I know I see it in myself that the development of the Dharma in our heart is a source of really great happiness. So when we think of you know, a suitable place to live, for the development of happiness, it's easy to think of the material needs, the material benefits. But I want to offer that we should also consider how accessible is or are the teachings that lead to liberation. So that's the first arena of area of life that we can look at the conditions of our life as that we now have and make some effort to fulfill others. You know, that in there, there was that one about being able to take care of your mother and father. Of course, for many of us, our mothers and fathers have passed on, but we can say other relatives. That's not always high on our list, I think, but when I think about how I would feel if I was unable to and they needed me because I just didn't either have the, the mental or emotional or financial resources but wanted to. And then I think how what a source of suffering that would be if I couldn't, not because I didn't want to, but because I just didn't have the capacity then I see why the Buddha said, 
Oh, to be able to, both uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, financially. Really important. The second uh, area of um, are the uh, more of the relationships, the personal relationships that we have. And the Buddha said, you know, to perform blameless actions, to, to, to act in a way towards others that is uh, blameless, to uh, act without harming, to be well-disciplined or well-trained so that we uh, speak, act carefully, uh, respecting life with self-respect and respecting others, to regulate ourselves, meaning to to guide ourselves with wisdom. Not just to follow the cultural norm or the societal norm, which, frankly, may not be good enough. To be happy. To be truly and deeply happy. Cultural norms may not get you there. Um, to be diligent in virtuous practices, to really guard your, guard your self-respect so that we're not careless. And there's every opportunity, as you all know, to uh, follow the cultural norm and sacrifice your self-respect. Uh, to be generous. Uh, one of the great secrets, teachings... I think of, of certainly of this tradition and maybe of any tradition is if you want to be happy, the easiest way is to give something, anything to someone, even a dog, even a bone to a dog, and you'll feel happy. That's how universal, universally happy-making the practice of generosity is. Seven, two, uh, abstain from doing unwholesome um, actions. To, to be well-spoken, well, there's a lifetime practice, more than a lifetime practice. To speak the truth, to speak gently, to speak with a loving uh, heart, to uh, speak, speak that which is beneficial at the appropriate time. Wow. Even to take one of those as a practice would really bring some awareness into your life. But to take all five of them? Well, and why do we do that? Because just think about in your life how much confusion, fear, pain, turmoil has been caused by either you speaking carelessly or someone else speaking carelessly to you. It's tremendous. I mean, it's just... There's just a tidal wave, a tsunami of uh, suffering from unskillful speech. It's not a secret why we're happy or unhappy. It's right there in, in plain language. If we're not careful with our speech, we're going to plant the seeds of uh, difficulty in our relationship. Where was I? Right speech. To avoid intoxicants. Our culture condones total intoxication. It does. Whether it's uh, uh, alcohol or nicotine or uh, illegal uh, recreational drugs or even prescription drugs. Some of them are, I mean, a lot of them are necessary and useful, but a lot of them are just to dull the mind so you can tolerate living. That is definitely not good enough to liberate your heart. It's not. While it may be legal, it may be condoned, it may be encouraged to, to free your heart may require a higher standard to disentangle the mind 
to clean up the mind probably requires a higher standard. To live simply, wow. It's hard to live simply, isn't it? We've been living here for a week, uh, quite simply. Just, you know, getting by with our minimal food and little social activity and a little... I don't think any of you are ready to make a commitment to a lifestyle of this because it's hard to live simply. Our lives are really complex. They're full, they're complex, they're, uh, they're multifaceted. So how can we live in a very complex society, a very complex life, but simply? That's the challenge. How to simplify our life to the, to the extent that we can so that we can kind of keep track of where we're going. We can keep our priorities clear. We can only take on what we know we can uh, do or what is beneficial for ourselves or others. I'm sure all of us have a to-do list that is just, well, endless and has got a lot of stuff on there that you'd rather not be doing. It's your choice. It's your choice. Everything that's on that to-do list, you put there by the choices you've made. Me too. I mean, I work at it, but you know, I know how difficult it is to, to simplify, if not to shorten, your to-do list. Now, We're talking about our relationships and how to uh, live in relationship to others in a way that supports our and their happiness. Well, we live in a democracy. For all of its faults, we have the opportunity to participate in the national political dialogue. Governments have the opportunity to enhance the well-being of their citizens. They can't individually make it happen, but they can enact or enable policies to support the happiness of their citizens. We are those citizens. If we don't participate in the national political discourse, you can't blame anybody. It's a responsibility we have. But it's a responsibility to, to engage politically as a practice. Not to just rant, not to just get into the blame game, not to just get angry and you know vote defensively, but to educate ourselves, to act wisely, to act compassionately, well, to elevate the political discourse, if you will. It doesn't have to, you know, political discourse doesn't have to kind of descend to the, to the lowest common denominator. Anyone can raise the political discourse by their own personal integrity. And if we're looking to live a life of personal integrity and to enhance our own as well as our community's well-being, this is an area that, you know, I've, I have never spoken about political activity in a Dharma setting before. But it has become more than just a political game. It is a personal responsibility to care for our communities, to care for our environment, to care for our ourselves. and to bring all the qualities of our practice into that political activity. The integrity, the honesty, the awareness, the understanding, the, uh, the renunciation, the right speech. This is a practice. But it's a practice that has the potential for uh, magnified effect. 
in our own life, we have, you know, we contact a few people and, you know, what we say affects a few people. In the, in the national political discourse, it can have a profound effect. There are a lot of uh, concerned people in the world. There are a lot of awakening people in the world who have a voice. And you, each one of you, each one of us, are that. I'm not telling anybody how to vote or what policies or anything like that. But it's easy enough when you listen to the national discourse, what are we talking about? There are areas to enhance, there are policies to enhance the well-being of all of us. So, if we look at what's going on and exercise some of our wisdom and our awareness, we can uh, directly affect not only our own well-being, but the well-being of others. Personally, I this this past year, we went to see uh, Al Gore's movie, uh, Inconvenient Truth, Inconvenient Truth, yeah. And you know, midway midway through the movie, I said to Kamala, "Okay, that's it. We're doing it. We're going to get our hybrid. You know, we've been wanting a hybrid, but we just you know haven't bothered to get it. We're going to get it." And by the way, we're also going to get our solar water heater. A solar water heater on, in Hawaii is a no-brainer. They give it to you. They give it to you. And it reduces your electric bill, you know, 40%. And it's free. It'll last for 20 years. Why don't, why don't, well, you have to make an initial upfront investment and you get it back within four years. It should be, well, it should be required. I mean, uh, you know, that's, that's getting into the political side of it. But I just said, it's such a simple thing we can do. Of course, our lifestyle is pretty, you know, casts a pretty big carbon footprint on the earth. We fly a lot, and that's one of the biggies for carbon footprinting the earth. So uh, help us to uh, <laughs> address that. But... It's something that each one of us can do is just calculate your own carbon footprint. What's your lifestyle doing to uh, the environment? It's just, it's just awareness. It's just being aware. You can be aware of the breath. You can be aware of your thoughts. You can be aware of your feelings. You can be aware of your carbon footprint. You know, it might shock you. It might shock you. What, what it does... To the, to the earth. So, that's my political uh, rap. But I think, it's a, I think it's a spiritual practice to engage in the political process. And I think those of us who are cultivating awareness and understanding and wisdom, hopefully wisdom, uh, I encourage us all to uh, participate. The third area of blessings that the Buddha identified are some personal qualities, personal attributes, which, you know, for those of us in the spiritual, uh, into a spiritual practice are pretty expected. They're nothing, um, nothing surprising. But to be humble, to be obedient, to be patient, reverent, and content. Well, I didn't have any trouble with that until I got to the obedient one, the second one. Mm-hmm. Obedient to to what? To whom? You know, mostly, you know, I think we're obedient to our own minds, the desire. And uh, any other options? So I, it, it it gave me pause to think. Now, what what does it mean? To be obedient. Here's what it is. The Buddha was saying that if you can be obedient, it will be a source of happiness to you. There are many people in the world who live in corrupt, with corrupt governments, who, who can't, be, 
can't, you can't be obedient. Can't, you, even if you knew how to, you couldn't. So just to have the clarity in our society of what is, what is right or what is wrong, what is legal, what is not, is, it's a source of happiness. We have a choice. And, and as we do in all spiritual practices and, and in many of these uh, attributes or blessings, is we have a choice of whether to choose the way to be happy or not. I'm thinking of uh, Uba Kin, who was a political, uh, he was a minister in, in uh, Burma. And he was like the Secretary of State. But he was so, well, he was actually at the Treasury. And he was so, he had so much personal integrity, partly because he did this practice, he, was, he practiced Vipassana. He had so much integrity that he cleaned up the corruption in what is a very corrupt government in, in that department, in, in like the, the Treasury Department. And he got, he made a requirement that all of his employees practice Vipassana. He was so successful, the government appointed him to several other ministerships to try to clean up the government. One person, full of integrity, obedient to the Dharma. Not obedient to the cultural norm, but obedient to the truth, the way things really are. Such a profound impact. We all have that opportunity in our life. Somewhere. In some small way. We all have that opportunity. To be humble, to be reverent, to revere. To revere. Can you name anyone that you revere? Really? To have someone in your life that you revere? It's a source of happiness. Why is it so difficult sometimes to think of who I would re- who I would revere? There are there are worthy people in the world, but we sometimes don't take the opportunity to acknowledge them, either to ourselves or to them, and to actually ha- develop that relationship or to acknowledge that relationship that we really care about someone, that we really value them in our life, or we value what they're doing. to pay respect, to honor, to esteem those who are worthy of esteem. This is, this is uh, a source of happiness. Patient is, uh, is a spiritual practice. It's my uh, lifetime practice. I've taken it on this lifetime. I remember the, uh, when I first met Kamala and we began to create a common household her youngest daughter was 13 at the time and I just come out of the monastery of five years where I lived totally alone and quiet in seclusion for five years not handling money never giving it a thought of what I had to earn or what I had to spend and I moved in a household with a 13 year old girl patient okay so the first <laughs> so she went out for track and she invited us to our first track meet. So we went down to the track meet, and there are these cement bleachers in the blazing hot sun. And there was all the high school the kids down there doing their practicing, and, and, and they called the vents, and you know there'd be the pole vault, and the 100-yard dash, and the 220, and the this, and the that, and the other thing. And every once in a while, Therese would run by, and prancing, and just kind of taking a look, see if we were noticing her. And, you know, she she was doing the triple jump, you know, the hop skip jump for for girls, and uh, she'd come by and prance, and we had to, we were watching everything. Say, you know, and you know, the time went by, and there goes one hour, and there goes two hours, and had to get a couple of drinks, and uh, you know, go to the toilet, and come back, and the third hour went by, and we're well into the fourth hour, and they're wrapping it up, and the the, the meat's over, and I said. I said, what, what, what happened? What, what? You, know, you know, all the time my butt is like turned to cement. And um, 
I saw Therese down there, and I went down to the fence. I said, what, what happened? Where, where's your event? She said, oh, they didn't have it. I said, well, tell I mean, why not? What's, what's going on? She's, so she went over and talked to her coach and said, you know, you, you forgot to do the, the girls' triple jump. Oh, 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 okay, okay, sorry. So, I mean, how they could have forgotten? I don't know. And why that one? But anyway, so they said, okay, okay, so hop, skip, and jump. So they got the girls, and you know, there's, you know, there's a dozen girls that are going to do this uh, hop, skip, and jump. So, Therese, you know, is whatever number she is, and she gets on the starting thing, and she, you know, she runs down the runs down the thirty yards or something, and does her hop, skip, and jump. It takes five seconds. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, then they clean off the pit and they do it all again and you know tw- another 20 minutes goes by and she gets her second chance and she runs down the thing and she does her hop skip jump another five seconds <laughs> you know and they clean it all up they get them all lined up again they do it again four hours for a minute of observing paying careful attention to watch That's a practice of patience I never had to do in the monastery. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you've got to wait for an interview, but <laughs> not like that. But it's important. It's really important to do. It's so important for her to know that we were there, and we stayed there, and we saw her practice and perform. really valuable, invaluable. And we all have that. We're all asked to do that in some way many times in our life. Can we take it on as, you know, our own practice? Because it contributes to our happiness and the happiness of others. And it's so apparent. It's so immediate. It's so direct. You see it. You get it really quick that, you know, for my own, you know, happiness, I could have left after an hour and been quite content, quite satisfied, temporarily. Because, you know, Teresa's unhappiness would have been so directly impacting of mine. So, what is it, really? When you, when you look at that kind of activity and, and the, the need to develop patience, what is it that really contributes to your happiness? Look, getting what you want all the time, quickly, is not the sure path to happiness. Sometimes it's, it's practicing patience. So the fourth area of um, blessings that the Buddha identified, of course, is spiritual practice. And I think just... Generally, for someone to have a religious practice, a spiritual practice, to um, to have beliefs that they uh, practice or that they cultivate, that they that they understand, is really important in life. Really important. You know, it's not just bread and butter that's going to keep you alive, but it's having a sense of uh, value, understanding, uh, seeing the bigger picture, if you will, understanding that there's more going on here than just getting born, getting a job, and dying, raising a family, or doing what you do. There's just a lot more going on here. There's a lot more. Uh, uh, there's a lot more potential in a human life than just that, and the whole arena of of spiritual life, to associate with the wise, to not associate with foolish people, to visit with spiritual people, whether it's a priest or a guru or, or come to a place like this, go to common ground in uh, Minneapolis, whatever it is, to, to, to just gather with uh, kindred spiritual folk and to, to acknowledge that part of your life. Of course, we're doing it here. This is not the, uh, the area that, that we are so deficient in. But to honor the worthy, those who are truly noble beings in your life, however, however they've gained that status, to, to be able to honor them. 
to discuss the Dharma, to hear the Dharma, to discuss the Dharma, to honor the worthy, and to be grateful. I was reading uh, an article in preparation for, for giving this talk, and it was an article about positive psychology. Positive psychology is not psychopathology. It's not the psychology that, address, that addresses the difficulties and challenges that people have, but it takes ordinary, normal, kind of well-adjusted humans and enhances their life. That's positive psychology, too, to develop the, the, the positive emotions, if you will. It's something like spiritual practice, to, to awaken the, the subtler, the more refined uh, capacities of the mind. Loving kindness, uh, honesty, wisdom, understanding, a sense of well-being, gratitude, things like that. And what they found, what they have developed uh, over some time are these different interventions, ways of enhancing your positive psychological qualities so that your sense of well-being is elevated. And one of the, well, what they found is that the... Uh, intervention that gives the highest boost or the greatest immediate boost to one's happiness is to express your gratitude. Express your gratitude. It's not, that doesn't require anything except to feel grateful and tell someone. That will give, that, that's what they found, is the, the biggest boost, biggest immediate boost to your, sen- to your own sense well-being. And so they've started this, uh, it, it, where, they, where they've been studying this positive psychology, they've started what they call gratitude visits to, 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 to find your teacher, find someone who's taught you something or a mentor, someone who's, who, who you have gratitude to, and go visit them to tell them how grateful you are for them in there, in, for having them in your life. Sure, they'll, they'll probably get a hit of happiness out of it, but you too will get a hit of happiness out of it. The Buddha was really uh, kind of ahead of his time, if you will, or I should say our science is just catching up, maybe, to, to documenting or, well, scientifically proving, I guess, that you know, much of what the Buddha recognized and taught is in fa- has in fact some, well, scientific basis, if you will. Uh, Kamala mentioned uh, a recent report in, I don't know, was it the New York Times or somewhere? There was a, a recent report. It was about the yogis at the three month retreat a couple of years ago at IMS. And, you know, it's a big, you know, it's in the science section of the New York Times. It's like, wow, meditation effects, you know. And the, the result that they were reporting was that meditation enhances your attention. <laughs> Hello. Uh, meditation develops your attention, your, enhances your attention. Well, in the field of science, you build knowledge, well, pixel by pixel. You know, and that's one of the pixels that just had to be proven. And so, you know, they had, you know, dozen researchers for three months, all kinds of brain equipment, and you know, measuring, monitoring. You know, I don't know how many students they had. It must have been 30 or 40, because I, I know I had dozens of them. In order to prove what's so obvious to us. But that's how, that's how science, that's how science works. And, and I'm grateful that they've, that they've proven that now. Now I know. There's a good reason. <laughs> but I, I look at it as, you know, the stepping stone for greater things ahead. You know, pretty soon they'll be finding out that mindfulness works, you know, <clears throat> in some ways, I'm sure. So, one of the last, but certainly not the least, and I, I want to emphasize that these Areas of uh, blessings in our life, they're not really hierarchical, but we can see that some are you know, kind of common and at a very physical, kind of like hands-on level, and some of them are a little more in the heart, 
dealing with uh, either emotions or heart level. And some of them are even uh, a little more elevated, a little more refined in, in, in dealing with um, you know, the qualities of awakening, the qualities of a liberated mind to be pure, meaning to clean the mind of its defilements, which we know is that's a challenge. But to the extent that we do, of course, then we aren't obsessed with the defilements. To be to live safe and secure. This really means to be safe and secure means to be safe from the defilements, to be secure in your knowledge that you won't be obsessed by the defilements. To be free from anxiety, another defilement, to um, cultivate a mind that's unshaken by the worldly conditions of praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure, pain. And to see the Four Noble Truths, to really see in your own life the truth of dukkha, that it is the second noble truth that is caused by craving, to see the third noble truth that there is the end of dukkha through practice, cessation of dukkha, and the fourth noble truth to fulfill the path or to develop the path, the noble eightfold path. If we see these in our lives, surely a foundation for happiness. And finally, to, to realize nibbana or the unconditioned, the liberated mind, you know, sometimes when we teach retreats like this, you can't possibly offer the whole Dharma. The Dharma is just so vast. It is so big. It's so comprehensive. It touches everything about life. And one of the first things that gets dropped off, I think, in, in the teachings on uh, introductory retreats or, or retreats like this is the possibility of liberation. We talk about, you know, just kind of getting a handle on managing stressful conditions and, you know, getting a, you know, kind of controlling your obsessive uh, emotional, your emotional reactivity. And you know, that's pretty good, you know, and if you can even get a little bit of calmness, so much the better. But liberation of mind, sometimes it seems so far away. I mean, how many retreats do you go to where the, where the teachers are actively talking about aspiring to realize Nibbana. I mean, not just as something that the Buddha and you know, people at that time did, but for us in this lifetime. That's the direction that our practice is going. Please, do not think it's only for those at the time of the Buddha only for those hermits that live in caves up in Himalaya somewhere, only for reincarnate lamas who've had you know, 14 or 15 lifetimes to do the work. It is available to each one of us here. It's not that far away. It does take commitment. It takes clear aspiration. It takes effort but it is available. Disentangling the mind, opening the heart from all that has caused it to be constricted, to be bound, to be limited, to be enslaved. It is possible. We get little tastes. We get little tastes on a retreat like this. We see, we get glimpses of just, you know, even just through eight days, nine days of practice, we see how much we shed off of our, off of our mind. And we kind of come out feeling a little cleaner. Our mind is just a little bit calmer, a little bit more open, a little bit shinier, a little bit more sensitive, a little more responsive. That's the direction that practice takes us until the heart is spotless, immaculate, unbounded. And it's possible. It just, it just is. I just don't want you to think that it's not. There are those among us who've tasted that. It is a source of the highest happiness, peace.
peace of mind, peace of heart. So these are the both the personal qualities, the external conditions, the internal attributes and choices that we can make that enhance a sense of well-being. It is through awareness training that we will gain this understanding. And with this understanding, we'll make different choices in our life. And through those different choices, we will do well. So let's sit for a moment. So this is our challenge, and this is our choice. As Upandita Sayadaw says, it is more important to live a worthy life than to merely strive for success. It's more important to live a worthy life. Thank you.